Michelle Sanchez grew up in a religious household, and she had heard the stories about the threat college presented to people of faith. It was a kind of a stereotype in my community of somebody who would, uh, you know, be very serious about their particular understanding of their faith and their community and then go to college and leave it all behind because they met a guy. She did not want to be that person. And I was very committed to the religion I was raised in, which was a conservative, reformed Christianity. Um, And I had no real interest in leaving that tradition. She wound up becoming a philosophy major. I was, you know, as many people when they're in college do, I was reevaluating my life, my past, the things I believed in. And then she did meet a guy. He came from a different culture. Although he was baptized Methodist, he hadn't grown up going to church. I, I think it's safe to say he's somebody who would have called himself spiritual and not religious. And like Professor Sanchez, he had no interest in leaving the culture he'd grown up with. But they kept hanging out. We got to the point where we, we were best friends and we were pretty aware of the fact that we loved each other. But with my religious background being what it was and his religious background being what it was, we were not in the same place in terms of the kind of person you're supposed to marry, especially from my end, and what that means about your commitment to your faith. But they had a lot in common, including a certain book. He took a philosophy class, a single philosophy class called Existentialist Themes. And in that class, he read Fear and Trembling. Fear and Trembling is an early work of existentialist philosophy. It was written by Soren Kierkegaard, a 19th century philosopher from Denmark. It's one of his most famous works, and it's his attempt to understand the nature of faith, illustrated through the biblical story of Abraham and Isaac. Professor Sanchez also read this book in a college philosophy class. And at the time, I don't even think we really compared notes about our respective readings of the book. But at some point, we got to a stage where we were willing to admit that we loved each other and that we wanted to be together, and we knew we couldn't do that yet. And that's when this book sort of emerged as a way, like a lens through which to understand our experience. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I spoke with Michelle Sanchez, a professor of theology at Harvard Divinity School, about Fear and Trembling, a book that took a new look at an ancient tale and influenced philosophical thought, and readers like Professor Sanchez herself. Soren Kierkegaard was born in Copenhagen in 1813. He grew up in an affluent and intellectual family and studied theology at the University of Copenhagen. Fear and Trembling was one of his earlier works, And in it, he takes a close look at the Old Testament story of Abraham and Isaac. The story goes that God promises Abraham that he will have many, many descendants. Abraham marries a woman named Sarah, and they grow old together. But Abraham and Sarah don't have any children. Abraham remains faithful to God, even though his plan isn't clear. How will Abraham have all these descendants if he doesn't even have one child? Finally, when Abraham and Sarah are very old, they have a baby boy, who they name Isaac. So the child of promise, the child of Abraham's whole legacy, the sign of his faith in God to have even made it this far, 
And then God comes to Abraham and says, sacrifice Isaac, your only son who you love. When Isaac is still young, God tells Abraham to take him to the land of Moriah and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. They travel for three days, with Isaac carrying the wood for the fire and Abraham carrying the knife. Kierkegaard wrote Fear and Trembling under a pseudonym, which was a common practice among authors in the 19th century. The goal was to explore an idea from a different angle. The fact that it's written from a perspective that is quite intentionally distancing itself from the author's own perspective. He's giving, he's creating like another person who's telling the story, who's going about this investigation. The name he chose was Johannes de Silencio. The name means basically John of Silence or John the Silent. And there's a few things that I think are significant about that. One is that in some ways the book is an exploration of the difficulty of communicating the things that are most important to us, the things that are most central to who we are, um, our deepest passions, that there's a kind of silence that surrounds that. There's an impossibility of just kind of straightforwardly telling other people what those feelings are and what they mean. And it also is significant because Johannes de Silencio is framed as an outsider, as somebody who doesn't understand. Uh, early in the book, Johannes talks about the fact that he's, he's not a philosopher. He says he's not a poet. At another point, he says he's not a thinker. Uh, and he says he doesn't have faith. He doesn't understand faith. And he also says he doesn't understand Abraham. So this is, this is somebody who's the quintessential outsider. He doesn't get what's going on. So why is he writing the book? He's writing the book because he loves Abraham. So he frames himself as a witness, an observer of Abraham, um, of the movements that Abraham's making, even when he can't be talking. Like there's no words to communicate this really deep and, and tragic and kind of fundamentally cruel thing that God slash life has placed before him to sacrifice not only the son that he loves, but the son that was that represents the promise of everything that he's hoped for. All of Kierkegaard's readers would have known the story of Abraham and Isaac. It's not an unfamiliar story to anybody who attends church. I mean, it's not. There are stories in the Bible that don't get talked about, that don't get preached, that are kind of scary. Like there's a lot of stuff in the book of Judges that people are surprised when they read it. But this story, in spite of its horrors, is pretty popular. And it's popular not just in Christianity. I mean, it's well known in Judaism and Islam um, that have their takes on it. In Denmark, Christianity was, and is, woven into the fabric of life. The markers of Christianity are kind of everywhere. Like, there's crosses in the windows, crosses on the buildings. It's a very Christian society in historically and, and sort of in practice, even as not many people go to church anymore. There's still kind of like overlaying of a certain kind of Christianity with a certain kind of Danish culture. And I think that was very alive and well in the 19th century. And... Kierkegaard was really worried that in the in, in what he called Christendom, in the sort of general acceptance of the hegemony of Christianity in society, something really intrinsic about the passion of Christianity was being lost, and that it wouldn't be something that you could just bring back by getting the words right. There's another way of understanding the important role that a certain kind of religion plays in human life, in the human condition, in the kind of paradoxical circumstances that human beings routinely find ourselves and often will react by trying to make sense of them through some other kind of narrative. It had to be, there had to be another way. Well, he makes the 
very provocative and I'm sure unnerving claim that all of those Danish Christians were not, in fact, Christian. And uh, this, con this condemnation that their Christianity is just some kind of, what, false imitation, that it gone away from the true spirit? Yeah, that Christianity becomes aligned with good society or something like that. Good manners, uh, a good understanding of society and adherence to the laws through which society achieves stability and functions. And all of this is well and good. He's not necessarily against what he calls the ethical sphere. But Kierkegaard is arguing throughout his work that the ethical sphere is sort of a middle sphere through which most of life takes place, but the real point of life is not understood or felt. Um, there's something beyond ethics that has to do with this passion that, that Johannes de Silencio sees in Abraham that he can see and that he sort of wants to get at through modes other than figuring out how to generalize it for everyone's consumption. Yeah, I'd like to ask you about this tension between ethics on one hand and faith or religion on the other. If what we as humans reason to be ethical is, you know, what is righteous or good, then there's sort of no reason for God because we can just come up with our own morality. And the story of Abraham <laughs> challenges that so dramatically with, you know, the most horrific crime the most horrific act one could do is to kill your own beloved child. So could you walk us through what is he saying about that relationship with, with faith and ethics um, and, and have those conversations continued through other writers and thinkers and, you know, shaped the way that we ourselves think about law and, and, and justice? Yeah, I think it might be helpful to, to think through how Silencio reads Abraham um, to get at this question of the relationship between ethics and faith or ethics and religion, as Kierkegaard understands it. He says people will tend to slip into cliches when they talk about it. So you'll get something like Abraham uh, loved God so much that he was willing to give God the very best, which was his firstborn son. Silencio is critical of these cliches because he thinks they miss the deep struggle and anxiety that this story tells. So he talks about how if, if, if he were telling the story, if Johannes de Silencio were the preacher, he might start by saying, look, Abraham is like the best example of a person. He's somebody who heard God's voice and responded and listened, and he was very pious and obedient, and God rewarded him by giving him the son. And, and on this point, he's not that different from the preachers who get the story wrong. But he thinks they get it wrong when, when they come to this moment where God demands that Abraham give up all the wonderful things he's been given, and particularly the one wonderful thing, his son of promise, who he loves deeply, and that they can talk about this as a sacrifice he's willing to make just out of the expression of his great piety. And he says that they, like when they do this, they talk and they don't feel the heat. They don't experience the perspiration. Uh, he has a thought experiment briefly where he says, what if a parishioner heard the sermon and went home and said, well, I better do like Abraham and kill my own son. And then the, the pastor who preached the sermon <laughs> would go to that guy and say, you're terrible. I can't believe you did this. You're like the worst example of a person. Yeah. And so there's something missing here in, in the ability to preach this sermon and what you like the point of preaching it. Johannes de Silencio says that if he were preaching this story, he would not just think about how pious Abraham is. 
he would contemplate what it really means that God is asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. He would focus on how courageous Abraham was. Each step he took on the long walk to Moriah was a step closer to Isaac's death. And yet he kept walking. But even when you get to that point, he says, there's a temptation to simply tell the story as a kind of tragedy. You know, like Abraham was so pious and he was willing to give this thing up. And there are times when in our lives we're faced with difficult circumstances and we have to give up the thing we love. And we're doing this because we're such a pious person and we're doing it because we're uh, in accordance with a higher law. Like we have to give up the thing we love because it's bad for society. There's all kinds of tragedies that follow this structure, right? And according to Johannes de Silencio, they also get it wrong because they fall back on overarching narratives overarching uh, means of legibility, so a kind of ethical discourse that gives an excuse for why the sacrifice had to happen the way it had to happen. There are two competing stories in this paradox. On the one hand, it's completely unethical to kill your child. On the other hand, God, the ultimate moral judge, is telling him to kill his child. And this is where... For Johannes de Silencio, if you want to get the story right, you really have to sit with that paradox and watch the movements themselves, um, which Abraham himself can't even talk about. So what he's really, I think, trying to do here with the relationship between mediums of legibility and and where he's placing religion and faith is is draw a kind of line beyond which we can't just fall back on a mediating narrative in order to justify ourselves as being good. So the one thought that came to mind is, uh, what is Kierkegaard saying about the unsayable? Uh, like, does he does he want us to accept that you can't always give an explanation to the things, to the higher things? I think it's maybe helpful to think about the way Kierkegaard describes religion is that religion, or what he calls the religious sphere, is a relationship between the individual as an individual and the absolute that's not mediated by the universal. So in sort of ordinary terms, the universal stands for whatever is general enough that it allows human beings to be legible to each other, to give explanations. So language, uh, law, all these kinds of things are things that I can use to justify myself. But when I do that, I'm necessarily abstracting from my particular circumstances. So I'm kind of suppressing parts of my particular life that is absolutely singular and not like somebody else's life in order to make myself understood, in order to get approval by other people who are working in the same medium. So I think what he's trying to get at with faith and religion is that there are dimensions to the human experience that if you tell one side, you're being irresponsible to the other side. And if you tell the other side, you're being irresponsible to the first side. That's what a paradox is. And that's what makes it absurd. So how how can you be responsible? And when I say responsible, I mean like responsive, like give attention to the particular circumstances you're in if they are contradictory if they don't make sense and you can't just sort of tell a straightforward story about them. In a paradox, there are two stories, two sides that contradict. To find a moral answer, you can weigh out the two stories based on the laws and ethics of your society 
and choose the greater good. And these are all things that basically relieve us of anxiety, relieve us of guilt, relieve us of a sense of responsibility. And that is all well and good for as much as it's well and good for. But there are moments in the human life where that kind of legibility simply isn't available to us. And you could just kind of fall into silence and enclose yourself in yourself. Or there's a way of moving forward. And how do you move forward while holding these two things together? And that's where he arrives at the night of faith, which is like the key moment for why this book was interesting for me biographically. Okay, so yeah, t- tell us about the night of faith and how that became a helpful concept in your life. I have a couple of passages that I think are relevant to this. So in this quote, I think the reason I chose this quote is you see Silencio really in operating in his close observation of Abraham as a character, rather than trying to sort of explain or you know justify what Abraham's doing. So here it goes. The dialectic of faith is the finest and most extraordinary of all. It has an elevation of which I can certainly form a conception, but no more than that. I can make the mighty trampoline leap whereby I cross over into infinity. My back is like a tightrope dancer's twisted in my childhood, and therefore it is easy for me. One, two, three. I can walk upside down in existence, but I cannot make the next movement. For the marvelous I cannot do. I can only be amazed at it. Indeed, if Abraham, the moment he swung his leg over the donkey's back, had said to himself, Now Isaac is lost. I could just as well sacrifice him here at home as ride the long way to Moriah. Then I do not need Abraham, whereas now I bow seven times to his name and seventy times to his deed. This he did not do, as I can prove by his really fervent joy on receiving Isaac, and by his needing no preparation and no time to rally to finitude and its joy. If it had been otherwise with Abraham, he perhaps would have loved God, but not had faith. For he who loves God without faith reflects upon himself. He who loves God in faith reflects upon God. And this is the peak on which Abraham stands. The last stage to pass from his view is the stage of infinite resignation. He actually goes further and comes to faith. Abraham I cannot understand. In a certain sense, I can learn nothing from him except to be amazed. So what I take to be important in that quote is both that we're seeing that Johannes de Silencio's understanding of Abraham is not something that he can sort of just easily narrate for the reader and say, oh, here's why he's important, X, Y, and Z. Um, But he's looking at Abraham's movements, his willingness to obey God, but to never stop loving Isaac. So he follows God's instructions exactly because his faith says, this whole situation makes no sense, but I have faith that God will make it work out basically in the end. And the proof of that is that when God indeed in the story in Genesis 22 sends a ram and says at the last minute when the knife is in the air says, here, take the ram instead, Abraham is willing to receive Isaac back. That's the moment where Abraham is, he doesn't have a minute to say, oh, I already let go of Isaac. I've already like deadened myself inside because I was prepared for the loss of my beloved son. Instead, Abraham is fully, because he never stopped loving Isaac, he's ready to receive him and to celebrate his life and to celebrate the, the joy of having his son there. And that movement, which he calls a double movement, is the movement of what, the text refers to as the night of faith. 
and the Night of Faith he contrasts with the Night of Infinite Resignation. The Night of Faith and the Night of Infinite Resignation look very similar up to a certain point. They both desire the impossible. The main difference is what happens when they realize that what they want is impossible. When this happens, the Knight of Infinite Resignation gives up. He doesn't believe the situation will be resolved in this life, even though it might be resolved in the next life, in heaven. The Knight of Faith, on the other hand, has complete trust in God to make the impossible possible in this life. Because the Knight of Faith is willing to rise to the level of infinity and give up the thing he loves for the greater good. But then also, this is the what the previous passage showed us, also receive back the ordinary sweet delights of life. So it's this impossible feat of giving something up and receiving it back. And that's what, that's what impressed me as a college student uh, when I was in this relationship that seemed impossible, but also seemed necessary. Like, we loved each other, and that was the truth. Uh, it was an undeniable truth. We also felt like we couldn't be true to ourselves while also being together. So we simultaneously had to live in this relationship where we gave each other up every day. We said there's no future to this, but we also had to be willing to receive each other back every day. And eventually, you know, we had enough of those late night talks and enough shared life experiences where our respective religious views changed enough that we slowly began to understand each other as being on the same page religiously. And as soon as that moment happened and we both recognized it, we said, okay, there's nothing to keep us from getting married. And we've been married now for almost 15 years. But having that that image, that kind of movement, that dancer in mind, made it legible for us in this kind of non-linguistic way uh, that we could just sort of live every day, both letting go and receiving back without deadening the part of ourselves that loved each other, but also without sort of getting rid of the legibility that had given our life meaning to that point. Kierkegaard is sometimes considered the father of existentialist philosophy, although the term existentialism wasn't coined until the 1940s. Different existentialist philosophers have different opinions about religion. Some believe in a god, some don't. What they kind of share in common is an interest in the situation faced by a concrete individual in time and space. So somebody who knows him or herself as existing and doesn't know what that existence means, and the meaning of that existence has to be formed and shaped in some way. Is it fair to link Kierkegaard's philosophy, writing, ideas, with subjective individualism? Does he want us to care more about the individual and... Does the higher focus on individual subjectivity, you know, pave the way for something like what we call postmodernism or or postmodern epistemology? I I would say, I mean, Kierkegaard in another one of his texts uh, has this famous like kind of one sentence, truth is subjectivity. And I think that's really instructive to sit with because he's not saying truth is subjective. So he's not saying basically there is no truth. He's saying truth is subjectivity. This idea of subjectivity influenced 20th century philosophers, as did Kierkegaard's thoughts on angst, despair, and the individual. So you, you mentioned that he was an anxious person, and people say he, he kind of helped us think about angst, and he helped us think about despair. Could you say a bit about your understanding of how he helps us think about our psych- psychological states or our, our mental well-being, or maybe like the response to modern life or city life um, that are concepts that are still very legible today. I mean, heaven knows we're all as anxious as can be right now. 
So for Kierkegaard, despair is kind of the opposite of faith, but it has a lot of similar qualities to faith. So um, I mentioned before in Fear and Trembling, he talks about the demonic, and the demonic is connected to his understanding of despair, that the like one is faced with a certain kind of crossroads when one is called beyond the ethical, when one finds oneself in this paradoxical state. And despair is basically the decision to stop there, to stop in the paradox and remain silent. So on the outside, in a certain, like for a moment anyway, the night of faith might look like the person in despair, the person suffering from the demonic, because they're silent. They can't talk about what they're going through. But the crucial difference has to do with this openness to joy that he talks about in the night of faith. So I think to the extent that this can help us think through anxious times or times of despair. It really just uh, underscores the importance of looking for joy (laughs) in little things, Um, sort of recognizing the impossibility of a situation and with open and clear eyes, the suffering of a situation, but not settling into the idea that all you can do to be responsible is suffer. I do think it's important to give ourselves permission in this highly anxious and guilty time where it feels like there's kind of no right thing to do to love. And if there's any way forward, it's got to be through some kind of willingness to love and embrace joy. Um, And to do that without forgetting the suffering is the task at hand. These are lessons that Professor Sanchez keeps coming back to. Whenever I face these, you know, some sort of difficult circumstances, I'll remember this story and it helps me. And and the most recent and most profound of those circumstances was a couple of years ago when I found out that I was pregnant. And I was one of these people who didn't want to have children um, and not because I didn't like children, but because I felt like my life had taken a certain direction where my career was really important and very all consuming, um, took a lot of work. And I would have told you a couple of years ago, I don't believe that any one person can have it all. Professor Sanchez recognized the impossibility of her situation. And like the night of infinite resignation, she didn't see a world where she could have a child and maintain her professional success. But then at some point, my husband and I decided, you know, we're getting a little bit older and we had kind of had some professional milestones behind us and decided like, well, maybe we'll try to have a kid and see what happens. And, you know, long story short, it happened very quickly, quicker than we anticipated. So I found myself pregnant and I was happy about it. But I also knew one of the reasons that I didn't want to have a baby um, was that I know that I do tend toward anxiety. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to be anxious the whole time I'm pregnant. I'm going to be anxious when he's a baby or she uh, is a baby. Uh, I'm going to be anxious through their whole life. I'm going to make them anxious. And I, you know, so it was just easier to say I'm not going to do that. So here I am pregnant. And of course, I was finding that very hard to deal with. And what I found myself doing was kind of minimizing the reality of the embryo and the the fetus and saying, you know, I'm not really going to think about this as a really existing entity. I'm not going to give it a name. I'm not going to think of it as a person because anything could happen. And I don't want to be devastated and crushed if, you know, the worst happens. And but at the same time, it's a profound experience to be going through it, you know, literally rewires your brain. And I think that starts right away. 
So I found myself growing attached to this thing that was growing inside of me and trying to make sense of that and thinking like, I want to love this thing, even though I have no idea like what it is or where it's going or what it's going to be. But I can't love it because I might lose it. And then I realized that I was precisely in the situation that Fear and Trembling narrates as the center of passion and love and faith and absurdity and angst and all of the stuff. And I thought, oh, I've been here before. <laughs> and I, this is a lesson that I need to apparently learn over and over again, that it's not about not loving and protecting yourself. Because in the end, what are you protecting yourself from? It's about like holding these things together without understanding without being able to control or understand exactly how this is going to work out. 12 weeks into the pregnancy, she had an idea. I remember saying to my husband, hey, if we have a boy, what do you think about Abraham? Without hesitation, he agreed. A few weeks later, they found out the baby was going to be a boy. He is there to remind me, just as, you know, Johannes de Silencia was looking at Abraham and wondering how to make sense of this figure. That's the only thing I can do, too, is look at this person who I love more than anything in the world and also sit with the fact that I could lose him at any moment and it would be absolutely devastating, but love him all the more for that. In the end, are there any insiders or are we all Johannes de Silencio? Because the text does such a wonderful job of defamiliarizing and distancing us from something that to a, you know, a Danish churchgoer would have seemed like, oh, I know that story. Um, it renders all of us kind of on the outside, and it helps deconstruct the binary between like a believer and an unbeliever. To truly understand this text, Kierkegaard took the position of someone who didn't understand it. He wanted to get beyond the cliche readings and understand Abraham as an individual. He did the same thing philosophically. He took common human struggles, the struggle to create meaning out of hardships, and to communicate experiences that exist beyond words and he mapped them onto this story. By making the text unfamiliar, he was able to give it a new meaning. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.